Being a Better Man, Episode 36, Perseverance and the Theory of Manhood. You have just entered a world governed by personal accountability, where being a man is not an excuse for bad behavior, where complaints are not allowed, whining is forbidden, and excuses do not exist. Join us as we focus on the actual character of men rather than merely the trappings of manhood, where we discuss getting the best out of yourself instead of trying to get the better of someone else. We have one singular mission, being a better man today than we were yesterday. Now prepare to have your thoughts provoked, your ego challenged, and your character tested. It's time for being a better man. Here's your host and fellow man in the trenches, Alf Herigstad. Hey everybody, welcome back to Being a Better Man. I'm your host and fellow man in the trenches of life, Alf Herigstad. Today I have a special guest that I'm really excited to introduce to you. I actually don't have time to talk about all the amazing things this man has done. I could spend an entire episode doing that. His novel, The Gift of No Water, is available on Amazon.com, and this summer his new book, Copper Man, will be out as an audiobook. Eric Williams is a husband and father of two, an avid fisherman, woodworker, and artist, and he's the co-creator of the award-winning Norwegian TV show Alt for Norga. He currently lives and works in Oslo, Norway. In my opinion, his is a story of perseverance and victory in spite of seemingly insurmountable odds. Among many other things, in spite of being severely dyslexic in a world that doesn't understand dyslexia, he is an accomplished author. He has met the challenges of raising an extremely autistic son. And as an American, he was able to battle and win over the powers that be in the country of Norway to create and deliver one of that country's most popular TV shows ever, Alt for Norga. No small feat. And that's how I came to know Eric Williams, because I was a contestant on that very same Norwegian reality TV show, and the experience totally transformed my life for the better, something I'm eternally grateful for. He spent his life being a better man, and there's a lot we can all learn from his story. Here he is, all the way from Norway, the man, the myth, the legend, and my friend, Eric Williams. Welcome to the show, Eric. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. Thanks for that introduction. I'm excited to be here. Um, as I was saying, let's start with just talking about this dyslexia thing. I, I wasn't even aware that you had this dyslexia. Well, when I was uh, in school, nobody knew what that was, of course. you know, I'm 50 years old now, so back in the 70s, people didn't know what dyslexia would be. I was just a kid that couldn't write legibly, couldn't spell and uh, had zero math skills. And so they put me in classes very early with kids that had you know, Down syndrome or autism or fetal alcohol syndrome. And I was just put in a very small little group to the side. And I, I think if I, if I were a student now, they would catch it. But back then, they had no idea. And how it manifested itself is that, of course, everyone could see that I loved to read. So they assumed I was just lazy. And I heard the words lazy so many countless hundreds of times growing up that I just took it in and realized, well, that must be true. All the adults are saying it and adults know what they're talking about. So apparently I'm lazy. And uh, what I didn't understand, of course, was that there are many different ways to be a person and that everybody has value to offer in one way or another. At the time, I just thought, well, 
I'm a flunky. I'm going to fail out of everything and I'll probably never get a job. And I don't know. I, I actually thought I might be on the street as an adult. Wow. Yeah. All I knew of dyslexia growing up was that dyslexic people see letters backwards and stuff like that, but I'm sure there's a lot more going on with it. Well, it seems to be just a different way of looking at the world, a different way of perceiving shapes and informations. So when I would look at letters, they would uh, float around on the page. They would flip upside down. They would change shape. And because numbers, which is actually called dyscalculia, my specific struggle with numbers, um, I had to give them all personalities so that I could figure something to do with these things. You know? right. But what I never understood at the time, but what really helped me later, was the understanding that nobody expected anything from me. And that's a strange, wonderful gift if you're creative, if you want to be an artist. And I knew very young that I wanted to be a writer. I just didn't know how that could ever come about because if I tried to write something down, it would flip backwards and forwards. So how did you manage to overcome that? What, what happened that had you overcome this uh, preordained future that you had put for yourself? Well, I started writing stories in my head because I always knew that I loved telling people stories. I loved crafting um, tales and also just recounting things that had happened in a way that I could see other people really responded to. And as I got a bit older, maybe 18, 19 years old, started doing some odd jobs. And whenever I could make a bit of money, you know, washing dishes or doing something, I would pay someone to type out what I had spoken into, a, you know, the old recorders with a big tape. Mm -hmm. I would read stories there and pay someone to, uh, to type them out. And this happened for several years as I built up a, a body of work that, you know, I had one copy of in this shoebox, but I kept writing and writing. And I could never have known that the computer would come along, which, of course, changed everything. Right. But if the computer hadn't come along, I'd still be you know, reading things out loud. One way or another, the stories had to come out, and that's all there was to it. So eventually, maybe because I had to fight so hard for those stories, I loved them and spent that much more focus on them. And how many uh, published works do you have now? Well, I have, I've written, I had a, an article for quite a while in an autism magazine because my son Tom is autistic. So I would write this uh, series of articles. I had a series of fishing articles in Fly Fisherman magazine. And then I started writing novels and short stories. And I had a few short stories published in magazines. And then I started self-publishing the novels. And that's, that's what I've been up to ever since, is uh, almost old school. You make something and you sell it, you know, right. one by one to people you meet. And the advent of audiobooks has probably really been a, a great thing for you specifically. It's a whole new discipline, but I really enjoy it. I enjoy going back to the origin, which is people, what they've done for thousands and thousands of years untold. You sit around a campfire, you sit around a space, and you tell stories. And as a traveler, because I traveled quite a bit when I was younger, and I found that the currency you brought with you were your stories. Because I traveled poor. But if you show up, you know, if you're a hitchhiker and you get in a car with several people and they've been driving all day, you've got currency. You've got tales to tell. And then they'd bring you home and you'd stay there and tell their kids stories. And it, it's, um, I don't know, it's real wealth. It's real gold. 
if you can grab your life's history and, and keep it and repeat it. That's a great way of looking at it as being currency to navigate through the world. And like I'm about your age too, and I've got tons of stories, and I encourage all the young guys living right now, pay attention to your life because those are your future stories. Pay attention and, and find the things that matter. That's why when I tell stories on the on the show here, I always try to correlate some lesson that I learned out of it because that's what life's about. Yeah, sometimes it, sometimes the bad things that happen, you can turn them around into something good, like your story about uh, the basic training. And yeah. the, and when they, they told you know, that, that was uh, chilling. And yet, for you, years later, that was something of value. Um, one time I was, I was writing a story and I spilled a coffee on my new laptop. Hmm. I, could, I just managed to afford a brand new laptop. I was so excited. I was starting to learn how to spell on it and type on it. And then I spill a, a coffee and it just I killed it. And so uh, I borrowed another laptop and I wrote a story called Death by Latte. <laughs> One laptop's journey into the heart of darkness. Right. And uh, I sold it to a computer magazine and they paid me and I got another laptop. So writing these stories helps me to turn drama and trauma into something useful. Have you published anything in Norwegian? No, no. My Norwegian's... I speak like a child, and uh, one of the problems is that the Norwegians are all very good. They're they're all very good at English, and also my brain just doesn't seem to absorb part of my strange brain. You know, I took four years of classes and could not seem to absorb a new word for everything on earth. So whenever I see Norwegians speaking to each other, I have this secret belief that they don't quite understand what the other one's saying. <laughs> now, with growing up in conquering and dealing with dyslexia probably helped you in relating to your autistic son as well, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. Because I had, you know, these good friends that had Down syndrome or autism or, you know, I was in these classes and it was a gift. It was wonderful because I got to make friends with them. And then years later when I needed work, I could always find work because there aren't many men working with special needs kids. Hmm. It's usually women that have a compassion that will do the job. So I always knew that I could find work doing that because there's a need for guys in that job. And, and it was great fun. And then when I moved to Oslo, I found this, uh, I saw this boy in a public swimming pool and he was walking around in the, uh, the hot tub. And I was in the hot tub because I didn't know that there was a Norwegian sign that said closed and he was autistic. So he didn't know there was a sign that said closed. So we're both in this tub and I'm looking at this kid and I realized I think he's I think he's very autistic. So later I saw him walking on the street with his mom and I approached them and asked if I could work with their boy. And eventually uh fell in love with Christina and adopted Tom and his sister and uh they became my family. Wow, that's and pretty I, I felt pretty like uh, I was the the man for Tom because I had the same kind of strange brain. Hmm. And he's Norwegian. What's been the biggest challenge raising him in Norway? Well, he's, uh, Tom has never spoken. He mm. doesn't speak at all, so he's profoundly autistic. And in that sense, he's, uh, he's like a little Buddhist monkey. You know, he wanders through the world, and he doesn't understand that there are different rules. Like, you can put honey on toast, but why can't you put it on your head? Right. Or, you know, you can, you can draw on paper. Why can't you draw with an avocado on the wall? Mm. For me, I had to learn how to listen and watch, because autists do everything and I think in general, people do things for a reason. 
And when we don't understand what that reason is, we just want to stop what they're doing. So I had to start listening and trying to see why is Tom doing this? May And for instance, he would always turn toast upside down when he would eat it. And then peanut butter and jam would fall onto the floor. So I can remember after a month of getting frustrated with this, I decided to try it. And it was delicious because, of course, the peanut butter <laughs> and the jam hit your tongue instead of the roof of your mouth. And I was like, Tom, I, I get it. I understand. Um, one time he was slamming the door for six months. Every night he would slam his bedroom door and about drove us nuts. And most parents will, you know, have to give their autistic kids drugs because they just won't sleep. But I really had to learn to listen and figure out. And what it was was that the door didn't shut quite properly. And it was like a carpet with its tip flipped over. He just couldn't stand it. He, so once I fixed the door, he never slammed it again. Huh. That's really fascinating. You could write several books on just the insights that you have into that, uh, into that mind. He's been teaching me a lot. He really has. And I think that, you know, people, people with different skills like me or like Tom, even if there are a lot of things we can't do, there's still a lot of things to offer. And for, for the autist and people out there who have a, a friend or a, you know, a child with autism, they have a lot to teach you. And your job mainly is to trust that everything they do, they're doing for a reason. And that trust takes a lot of courage. So for me, that was, uh, that was a big part of becoming who I am, is trusting in this boy. Hmm. And then you went on to really transform the lives of many, many people, myself included, <laughs> by creating Altfernorga. And what a gift that has been for me and, and a lot of the other cast members that have been on the show I mean, I got, I found my wife because of that show. Thank you. <laughs> you are so welcome. It makes us so happy when David and I see the, uh, it's, you know, see the posts of, of you and Luli and, and so many different people that have launched into exciting activities after the show. Tell us a little bit about the show, um, the, the concept of it, how you came up with it. Well, we, um, like many good things that happen, we stumbled into it not knowing what we were doing. David and I were uh, starving writing partners, uh, trying to write sitcoms and film scripts and just not having, not having any luck. And we were at it here in Oslo. He's David Berner. He's also an American. And he and I would wander the streets and try to come up with good ideas. And then we found out there was a contest called Brain Station. And we applied for it at the main station called the main network called TV Norway. We applied and we, we got into this contest. So we show up at this huge hotel up in the hills. We have our own rooms, bowls of fruit. I mean, we're thrilled. This is so exciting. And uh, then we go down for the contest, and there are, there are producers from Sweden, from Denmark, and from all over Norway, and they had brought whole teams with them. And we thought, well, we're, we're really, you know, this is David and Goliath, but we have to give it a try. And then one of the, uh, the heads of the TV station came up to us and said, there's been a mistake. These ideas that you've brought us and the PowerPoints, none of them work. This is a reality show competition. And we said, oh, no, reality's terrible. People are mean to each other. They're hateful. We, we want no part of that. And then the, the boss, he said, well, you've got 45 minutes to come up with something. And so David and I scrambled our brains for 45 minutes, and we wrote on a series of cards 
you know, I held up a card and he took a picture. The first card said, we take 10 Americans with Norwegian ancestors. And the next card said, we bring them to Norway and put them through a series of extreme cultural challenges. And then the third card said, and the winner gets a family reunion with relatives they'd never met. So we walked into so much money and preparation from all these other companies. And we showed pictures of me holding these paper cards with a few sentences on it. And we won the whole thing. Wow. That's amazing. And the good you've put into the world with this show, not just for us contestants, but for the Norwegians themselves. I just found a whole batch of Facebook messages that I never got to see before. They were hidden somehow in Facebook. And I was reading through them, just tears in my eyes, all these Norwegians just telling me how it made them proud to be Norwegian again. I'm like, wow, this is awesome. Just You really put a good thing in the world. Oh, thanks, buddy. That's music to my ears. It's really, and what made me happy is to find out that a lot of grandparents watch it with their grandkids because maybe they have brothers that moved when they were young over to America or they want to show them some part of the, uh, the country. But I, I still, whenever I see the show and people are, go to the farm that their grandparents had or go to visit some valley, I still cry every time I see it. I think it's, it's a very funny show, but it's, it's really touching. And I'm so happy that, uh, that all these Americans that we brought over are kind to each other. This is a show where nobody cheats, nobody's mean. There's no alliances. The only trouble is when people have to leave and everyone else feels so sad because they, they wanted to win, but they didn't want to beat their, their friend. Right. And you don't want to leave your friends either. No. <laughs> but you were a really, I have to say, you were, you were such a great character in that show. You, you showed up and you brought your A-game and everyone kind of rallied around you and... Uh, I've I've met so many people that really wanted you to win and that told me that you were their favorite character. So you got to take that in. I do. I do appreciate that. And I feel like I won because of the ways that it improved my life. And like I said, I met my wife and I've got, you know, hundreds of new friends and 2000 Facebook friends all from Norway. And, and I stay <laughs> in touch with them and wish them happy birthday. And, and it's really given me a whole new level of connection to my heritage and everything leads to something else when you have an adventure like that then you come back and you start you know projects like you're starting now i mean this what you've been up to lately i think is profoundly important i think this is this is and you know being out there in the world means that you come back with all this good energy that you can bring to a project like uh like this podcast yeah you know before i went to the show I was nervous because I had seen American reality TV and, like you said, all the backstabbing and alliances and meanness. And I really expected my integrity to be challenged. And I was resolved to really be who I am and be authentic and not compromise my ethics. But then I got there and I didn't have to. So that was quite a relief <laughs> yeah it's a challenge but but it's only it's you know it's scary but it's scary stuff like standing up in front of people and giving a speech or trying trying to learn a whole new culture and no i i really look forward to uh to looking back at, at some of these uh some of the episodes now it's it's coming up to season seven and we were uh, we were uh, nominated again two days ago for another uh i guess it's a norwegian emmy this gold frame award right yep every Every year has been nominated. And I'll, I'll put a little link to the YouTube 
clips in the show notes so that people can check it out and see what it's about. Yeah, you might as well. Yeah, and I'll have links to your um, uh, book on Amazon and stuff like that. Now, oh, I appreciate that. Were, did you work as a comedian for a while too? Yeah, when I uh, when I got out of high school, I loaded up my Jeep and drove to Hollywood. And uh, because uh, I didn't know what in the world to do or how how scary I sh- how scared I should have been, I wandered into situations where I got jobs that were above my. Uh, my skill set just because I, you know, I'd wander in and say, oh, there's an agency. Maybe I should have an agent. Then I'd walk in and say, hi, I want an agent. And then I'd get one. But if you go through the 10 or 12 steps that you should go through to get that, by the time you're up there, you're terrified. But right. I just kind of wandered in. And it's the same with auditions. So I, got, uh, I did improv comedy for two and a half years, and it was always terrifying. And uh, I went to auditions. I got murdered in a horrible horror film. I mean, the worst horror film ever made. It's called Blood Diner. Hmm. I might have First seen that. First they greet you, then they eat you. <laughs> yeah. I think I saw that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so basically I had fun, but, but really the whole time that I was there in Hollywood going in, reading scripts, all I wanted to do was rewrite the hmm. parts that I would try out for. And it became very obvious that what I needed to do was to become a writer. I needed to continue what I'd wanted to do as a child. But it was great experience. I loved it. And every time I get a chance to speak at a wedding, that's not near as terrifying when you've been in front of a, an audience in California. You know, it, it just, it raised the ceiling for terror for me in a good way. I thought about being a, a comedian for a little while and I had a whole bit, you know, worked up, but it's just got to be the most terrifying thing in the world to me because to get up and be a comedian, what if nobody laughs? Oh, and it is something else. It's, I mean, you've never spent a, a, a longer three minutes. And I know that, that you've, you've boxed enough to know what a long three minutes is. Oh, yeah. But I, I've never spent a longer three minutes than when you're dying on stage and nobody laughs. And sometimes it's not even you. Sometimes the, they're not laughing because the traffic was bad or there's just the wrong mix. But when it goes well and everyone's roaring with laughter, and it's only you, there's no drug in the world that could ever come close. And it lasts for, for the rest of your life. You can still look back on that moment on stage and really smile about it. So I see why people still do it, but you know, I'd, a couple years of terror was plenty. Well, and it led you to your, your true calling, or helped you realize what your true calling was. Absolutely. And you know, experience for a writer, every experience you can have that's really intense and adventurous that's you know that will find its way back into your work now you had written something in our email correspondence that i'm intrigued by and is relevant to this program and that is your theory of manhood so why don't you tell us what eric williams theory of manhood is pay attention out there <laughs> put your crash helmets on well when i was younger i read the book walden by henry david thoreau uh, he was a man in the 1850s that went to a cabin and then for a year and then wrote about it, wrote about his experiences. And he starts the book by saying, I went to the woods to live deliberately. And that had always resonated with me, the idea that you could live deliberately. And I remember the first time that I felt like I entered into a rite of manhood was going up alone I lived in Arizona as a boy, 
going up alone with a, a sleeping bag and a can of Hormel chili, a box of matches, and staying the night completely alone. And, you know, as a 12-year-old, I had bitten off more than I could chew. I can remember being up there, and it got pitch dark, and I remember a bunch of coyotes howling. And if you've ever heard it, it's not charming. It'll send chills down your spine, especially for a 12-year-old. And it was terror, and it was thrilling, and I couldn't quite believe it. But what happened the next morning, I could never have anticipated, is that the sun came back up. And I was looking out at the most beautiful morning in the world because somehow that night had transformed me. I'd faced some dark, scary things and realized that I could handle them. And I repeat that, and that is my theory of manhood, is spend a certain amount of prepared time completely alone. And by alone, I mean, well, here's an example. I go out several times a summer for night fishing. And I go out alone, I turn my phone off, and I start fishing, and I find a place in the middle of nowhere on an island in the Oslo Fjord, and then the sun goes down. And I feel the same thing that I felt when I was 12 years old. The midnight monsters come, the, the thoughts of, who am I, what am I doing? You know, what am I going to do when I get old? What about people that I love that might die? Every monster comes to visit. And then the next morning when the sun comes back up, it's like a rebirth and you feel good. I feel good about it and from it for weeks and weeks. It has a lasting effect because you realize that you're far stronger and more capable. And you've also battled some things that you've been too distracted to think about when you've got a TV and you've got your job and you've got everything else happening. So being alone, truly alone, without looking at a phone or listening to music, it's a big big thing to do, bigger than you think when you're planning it. And yet it is the path to, uh, to finding your manhood. I really couldn't agree with you more on that. And I, it's the rite of passage thing. I talk about it, you know, in one of the uh, early episodes, but uh, I think you've really described it well. And what happens, like the chemistry of it that takes place when you're in that position of being alone and afraid and and when those monsters come to visit, you have to deal with them. And it makes the next day a lot better. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I, I've got a similar thing that I did once. I was terrified of werewolves when I was a kid. It had this unrational fear of werewolves. <laughs> That's great. I, wa I wasn't really afraid of anything else, but, God, werewolves terrified <laughs> me. Because there was nothing you could do. I mean, they could smell you. They could find you no matter what. And... Who's got a silver bullet laying around to kill him with? <laughs> Nobody. So um, it, it started to become a real problem because I was 13. And, you know, my dad would send me out to get wood at night. And I'm like, uh, Dad, there's a full moon. I'm not going out there. And then we'd have this drama in the house because my dad, you know, thinks I'm crazy. And uh, I'm too afraid to go outside because it's a full moon and... I got to a certain age, so I'm like, I got to do something about this, because intellectually, I knew they weren't real, but I couldn't get over the fear of them. So one night at midnight, I decided to just face it down. I walked out into the middle of the woods and on a full moon, and I walked through the woods, and I really thought I was going to die, because I could hear them. 
It sounded like a family of them around me, following me, tracking me through the woods. And I got to one point where I just screamed at them, like, come and kill me. You know, get it over with. And nothing happened. And I don't know how much time went by. A couple hours, I just laid there going through every emotion in the book. And finally, I stood up and I'm like, wow, the the forest in the moonlight became beautiful. And it took on a whole new meaning I was afraid of nothing anymore and it really was a a life-altering moment for me conquering those werewolves it's it's there's there's some kind of werewolf for everybody but it's so good to actually take that step out into it and I think that uh, for us it maybe was a bit easier because we didn't have an iPhone and I think that the big the big thing that has to happen for you to dare to call yourself alone to say that you're going on a rite of passage to face you know whatever werewolf you've got going on is to actually say I'm turning this thing off or I'm leaving it home right and I'm actually going to because if you can watch um you know an episode of friends or you know send five or six texts back and forth you're not alone you're connected and there's a safety and worse than the safety there's a distraction and uh being out alone means no distractions, and that's that's a, has to be a hard set rule, or else you're not actually earning your stripes when you go out there. Yeah, I I hope everybody's really listening close to this because what Eric described as his theory of manhood is some of the best advice given on the show to date. I think I think everybody should do something like this, and there's so much value in it. Now, Eric, if somebody wanted to contact you or reach out to you, what would be the best way for them to do that? They can just send me an email. That uh, If you put the link to my email, um, I'll give it to you and you can have it on. And I'm happy to connect with anybody. Um, I feel like it's, uh, it's not only our jobs, but it's our fascination. It's fun to see what other people are doing and to trade stories. So I'm, I'm very open to anyone that has questions or thoughts on this stuff to just send me, a, send me an email and I will answer. Will you uh, tell us what your email is, and then I'll put it in the show notes, too. W-I-L-L-G-J-E-M-S at gmail.com. Perfect. And your upcoming audiobook, what is Copperman going to be about? Well, if uh, I don't know if anyone's heard of the, uh, you know, the Iceman, the man that they found in the glacier. He's 5,000 years old. They call him Otzi. And uh, they found him in the, the Italian Alps and uh, have been studying his body for 10 or 12 years now. Well, Copperman is his, his autobiography told in first person. Oh, cool. That should be very, very interesting. I remember it has a lot of uh, survival and a lot of uh, just how, how life was lived back then. He was a fascinating, fascinating creature. Yeah, I remember when... They found him, and I've I've read quite a few articles about it. It's really interesting. So good luck with that. And and it's an audio book, and obviously the people consuming this podcast are used to listening to audio, so it would be a, a natural thing for them to do. And now they'll recognize the voice. Yeah, yeah, yes they will. Well, thanks a lot, Eric. Uh, thanks for being on the show and giving us some of your wisdom and your time. Well, it was my pleasure. I think you're doing a very important thing. It's really good work, and I, I want to be a part of it. You know, I hope that sometime I could come back on again 
and, uh, you know, revisit some of these topics or tackle some new ones. But uh, this is... Uh, this is big stuff, and I think it should be jumped into with both feet. Well, thank you very much, and that's Eric Williams, everybody. Thank you very much, and we will talk to you later. Take care, buddy. Well, that was my talk with Eric Williams. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. He truly is the epitome of what being a better man is all about. From his overcoming dyslexia to become an author to adopting and raising a child with autism, being a comedian and creating a life-changing television show in a whole different country from where he was raised, that's what perseverance is all about, my friends. One big nugget that he gave us was his theory of manhood. It will be in the show notes, but listen to it again if you need to, because he nailed it. All the links will be in the show notes at beingabettermanpodcast.com. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and if you're a first-time listener, welcome to the show. Now, each and every one of you, go out into the world and be a better man today than you were yesterday. Until next time, this is Alf Herigstad signing out.